Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this episode, you'll meet Howard Husick, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the author of a new book called The Poor Side of Town and Why We Need It, which takes a critical look at the more than 100-year effort by the federal government, private developers, activists, and others to create low-cost housing in the United States. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Howard Husick, we are going to spend an hour talking about housing policy. And before we have everybody running to change the channel on us, this is a topic you're passionate about. Why? I'm passionate about it because we used to have a formula for creating what we talk about now as affordable housing. And we forgot that formula and we really suffered because of it. It used to be that every region had its own special kind of regional architecture. There were the three-family houses in New England, the row houses in Philadelphia, the the duplexes uh, in in Chicago, the bungalows in California. And these were the raw material, not just of housing that people can afford, but of organic communities where people knew each other, where there was a lot of owner presence, but small landlords, small multifamilies. And they were really the foundations of good neighborhoods, good walkable neighborhoods. And somehow we lost this formula and I wanna bring us back to it. You are a former journalist, now a scholar who thinks about housing policy and related issues. Uh, How did you get interested in pursuing this so deeply? Well, I was involved in in town politics. Uh, I was uh, maybe the most minor elected official in the United States. Uh, I was an elected member of the town meeting of Brookline, Massachusetts. Now you think of Norman Rockwell and and anybody could just show up and vote. It wasn't quite like that. We had a couple hundred town meeting members and we voted on the annual budget. And I noticed how interesting this legislative body was. It had, you know, doctors and lawyers. There was a lot of affluent areas in this community, but it also had uh, uh, public works employees and laborers. Uh, and uh, and teachers, people people of a tremendous range. And I realized that that was the case because we had neighborhoods of different types, different income types. Not that we had, uh, you know, subsidized housing or a lot of it, a little bit of it, but we had small neighborhoods where people owned their own small houses. And those had historically been affordable and they continued to be. But then I I learned that these neighborhoods used to be much larger. There were many more of these three-family and two-family houses where the people of modest means lived and elected members to the town meeting and worked together with their more affluent neighbors in civics. Uh, What had happened is they'd been torn down. Urban renewal had wiped out what in Brookline were working-class white neighborhoods. And then once I started to think about that and learn about the urban renewal history in this country, well, that led me to realize that Historically, black neighborhoods all around the country were people owned their own buildings, rented out to their neighbors, founded community institutions. These were demolished in the name of urban renewal in the in the, the kind of calumny. These were just slums. And I think it was to the detriment 
of those areas that of the people of those areas. You wrote about your your time in the Brookline Town Meeting in the 1980s, and there were a couple of follow-up questions I had. First of all, you talked about the issue of voting in that in that town meeting over rent control. What was the concept behind rent control, and does it exist anywhere in the country anymore? Well, you have rent stabilization, as they call it here in New York City, and it regulates the prices of 1.2 million apartment buildings. So it really does exist in a very big way in New York City and in in smaller ways uh, throughout California, uh, particularly, uh, not affecting as many uh, housing units. But uh, yeah, that certainly steered me, that debate in, in the town in which I was, as I said, a very minor elected official, although I was on the finance committee, it was a little bit powerful, uh, did steer me into thinking very hard and long about housing policy because what I saw was that uh, uh, it, rent control had these deleterious effects. In the name of creating affordability, it l- limited the turnover of houses. And so uh, people stayed longer than they might have otherwise. Uh, the, and particularly, the property owners did not invest in the upkeep because their returns were limited. And so uh, we didn't have gentrification. We had what I used to call shabbification. The town was getting shabbier and shabbier. And I said, this rent control thing is really not a healthy way to uh, uh, keep housing inexpensive. It has these bad side effects. And that led me in, we could talk about rent control for a long time. uh, And we did in the town meeting, but it led me into getting deeply into housing policy, the history of the Housing and Urban Development Department, and a whole lot more. And you write that it helped move your own views from left to right. It did. I'm, I'm one of that generation of baby boomers that was uh, uh, definitely a part of the left-wing uh, anti-war and civil rights movements. I, I don't regret many of those views, but some of the views I, I, I do uh, look back on and say, no, that wasn't really the right way to think about it. And so, you know, I saw uh, how uh, people would stay in these rent-controlled apartments and they missed the chance to, to buy homes and they missed the chance to build equity. And that's the same thing I see in subsidized rental houses generally. We're, we're in the name of helping people, we're discouraging them from uh, uh, purchasing homes and developing equity, accumulating wealth and uh at the same time, we make it harder for people to buy homes because we don't build those small homes that are what I call naturally affordable. One last question about the town meetings, and then we'll go back to housing. I, I was struck by the fact that you wrote that even though the debate was often very heated, intense, there was a sense of common concern. And I'm wondering if that is a, a something you can compare with the reports we're seeing about the acrimony that often accompanies local meetings around the country and, and how and how debates and partisanship uh, have really intensified over the past decade. Yeah, it, it was a different era, that, that's for sure. But it, it's interesting. We had a shared purpose and responsibility. It was our task voted by a small number of voters. You know, I was elected with four or 500 votes uh, to hash out a town budget to decide how much goes to the schools, how much goes for street cleaning. We had a shared responsibility and we had a shared interest in in the town being the best town it could be. And what I really relished about it is that 
you know, frankly, rich and poor together were in the same polity as the civic, as the political scientists would say. We had a shared purpose. And because there was a rich side of town and what I call the poor side of town, the title of my book, uh, uh, we were there together. And so I think the fact that we had that shared purpose uh, inhibited uh, the divisiveness that we see today. As we uh, dig into the history and policy that you've got uh, outlined in your book, The Poor Side of Town, and why we need it, uh, I wanted to just ask one question about uh, a, a, a trend that people might who live in or visit urban areas might really have noticed over the past decade, and that's the number of tent cities that are yes. arising in neighborhoods. Are they connected to housing policy? I, I tend to think that the term homelessness leads us to believe that they're connected to housing policy. But uh, uh, it, in fact, I recently testified before the uh, uh, before Representative Waters in the House about this very thing because she has so many homeless people in her home district in Los Angeles. I tend to think that we overplay that connection. I, I see the homeless encampments as much more a function of our failed uh, mental health and substance abuse policies and as a side effect, a terrible, tragic side effect of our closing state uh, hospitals for those with uh, uh, troubled uh, mental conditions, the deinstitutionalization. Uh, we certainly don't need those as at large a scale that we, as we used to have them, but we need places for people to go to get treatment. And we've turned our backs on treatment, even as types of treatment have become more available and more effective. So I, I see the homelessness when you have a really large percentage who suffer from, you know, not just common garden variety anxiety or depression, but paranoid schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder. These are people who are in our jails, in our encampments. This is a terrible failure of our, our mental health policy. And uh, I think that's where our, our first uh, locus of attention should be to try to push back against this terrible trend of the encampments. So let's turn to a more in-depth discussion of The Poor Side of Town, your latest book. What will readers get in it? I think they'll get a sense of uh, how our housing policy has evolved and what an interesting intellectual journey it's been. There, there are a series of important American figures who shaped the way we live and uh, have bequeathed to us a history of house, of tremendous housing opportunity in this country, but also tremendous housing policy mistakes. And so I, I, I use the biographies of some fascinating figures, tell their stories. Jacob Reese, uh, the, the photographer, documentarian of the Lower East Side in New York, a very obscure protege of his, Lawrence Veillet, who was really the man who created zoning in this country, and we, we live with its effects today. And then uh, two important housing reform women, Edith Abbott Wood, and especially a, a woman named Catherine Bauer. And the, these women took important positions in the Roosevelt administration, wrote the National Housing Act, whose effects we still live with, and they really believed in public housing. And the, the public housing legacy and its deleterious effects especially on African-Americans. That's a big theme that I push in the book. Uh, you know, going back to my 
more left-wing days. I was drawn into politics because of concern about civil rights. And I've transferred that concern to an understanding of how progressive politics and public housing particularly has had really bad effects on the wealth accumulation uh, of black Americans. And I think that's a surprising theme that we'll find in the book, including the urban renewal effects on healthy black neighborhoods that were destroyed. Then I move on to Jane Jacobs and her understanding that uh, these planned big towers in the park were bad for so many reasons. And uh, even though she's kind of considered a hero by many, I don't think we've really taken in her lessons as well as we should. And, and, and I move on to uh, the ways in which we can do what I call unreform housing. Let the, the small houses on small lots inch back into our lives, uh, but it won't be easy. We have to convince all of our local planning boards that we need a place for our young adults to live in the same town where they grew up, a place for teachers and firefighters to live in the same towns that they serve. And that's gonna require changes in our, in our zoning laws, uh, which we're starting to see happen. So I'm not pessimistic, uh, but I'm not sanguine about it either. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper and starting with Jacob Rees. Uh, back in 2016, the Library of Congress actually did a large exhibition about Jacob Rees and his works. We're, we're going to listen to a little clip from two of the curators, Cheryl Regan and Barbara Blair, uh, giving us just a, a slight hint of his work, and then we'll come back and learn more from you. His most famous picture today is Bandit's Roost, which shows a couple of toughs, uh, Italian toughs wearing um, bowler hats. In fact, that picture was sort of copied um, by Martin Scorsese in, um, in, a, in a movie, um, The Gangs of New York. So it's a kind of iconic image. It was in the middle of an area called Mulberry Bend, which was a section of Mulberry Street near Baxter Street that became a particular cause celeb for Reese in terms of urban um, reform. And he eventually would succeed in uh, working with municipal authorities to demolish Mulberry Bend and replace it with a park. How did uh, someone that you describe as a one-time itinerant carpenter from Denmark become important in American housing history? Well, the interim was the most important uh, fact about him. Before he was the most important housing reformer in American history, he was a police reporter uh, for New York tabloids. And Jacob Rees grasped the idea of sensationalism. This was the yellow journalism area, era. And so uh, lewd, lurid stories about dead bodies and kidnappings and ransoms, these were the coin of his realm. And he became alive to the fact because he saw many of these lurid tales of crime play out in the quote-unquote slums of New York uh, where the gangs of New York, as Scorsese would put it, were, were, were running, uh, he, he understood that the images that he saw there, particularly of children in alleyways, uh, of uh, uh, people living by cold light without bathrooms or enough sunlight, uh, these could be sensationally framed and would be shocking to his middle-class readers and that this was a way of attracting tremendous attention. And he was an absolute pioneer. He was doing documentary films before there were films. He was an absolute pioneer in the use of, 
of flash photography. And that's how he came up with so many of those photos. But his, his lens was very uh, narrow. He focused on the immediate physical conditions on the Lower East Side. And in the book, How the Other Half Lived, which has made him incredibly legendary in American history. There's exhibits about him in the New York Historical Society, the Library of Congress, as you pointed out. One thing that really struck me, he ne- we never hear the voices of the residents at all. We don't know how they were experiencing. Were they miserable? But yet other accounts of the period show people who were optimistic, who thought this was going to be a temporary condition. They were willing to put up with these because they thought things were going to be better for their children. And you know what? That happened. It was a transitory phase. But many people concluded from Reese, and Reese propounded the idea that the conditions of the Lower East Side in the tenements in the 19th century showed that private, the private sector was always going to fail the poor. And we really had to, as with Mulberry Bend, tear down those structures and those neighborhoods and replace them with ultimately public housing. And so Reese set us off on that path. And I conclude because he didn't take into account the day-to-day activities and savings and aspirations of the poor, that he really did them a disservice and led the country on, on a false path. At the time, where would residents of neighborhoods like Mulberry Bend, if their, their slums were torn down, where would they go? Well, they would. That's always been a problem with tearing down the slums is it causes more overcrowding in the slums that remain or the, you know. But as it happened in in New York, uh, uh, around 1915, uh, an important bridge across the East River was built, the Williamsburg Bridge. And suddenly parts of Brooklyn opened up to the upwardly mobile immigrants and they began to move across the river to uh, attached houses Uh, that they could afford on their own, perhaps by taking in renters as well. And the Lower East Side began to empty out. So it turns out that Reese's flash photography snapshot was a temporary manifestation. And uh, as um, uh, Lillian Wald, who was the head of the Henry Street Settlement House, which served the poor on the Lower East Side, would write in the 1930s, we're now surrounded by empties. So... They didn't all move to Brooklyn at once, but over time, they really did in large numbers. How did the 1917 immigration law changes impact the story of housing in the United States? Well, uh, the restrictions on the types of housing that Americans were permitted to build really have their origins in a rather sordid history of anti-immigration sentiment. So my favorite example in the book is a gentleman named uh, Prescott Hall, who was the head of the American Immigration Restriction League. So beginning in 1970 and then culminating in 1924, the door was slammed shut on immigration uh, into the United States. Uh, we, We can decide whether maybe that helped us assimilate the immigrants, whether it was good or bad, but there was a lot of pushback against immigration. And this gentleman, Prescott Hall, he understood the kind of housing types that I celebrate in the poor side of town as being, as facilitating 
uh, immigration. So he wrote a, a, one of my favorite and essays that I've tried to rescue from obscurity in the book, The Menace of the Triple Decker. So he regarded the wooden frame, three family houses that are ubiquitous in, in New England as a menace. Oh, they were fire traps. They gave people the, the false impression that they were going to have a useful asset. Well, guess what? They were useful assets. They moved into what two sociologists in, in Boston, Robert Woods and Albert Kennedy, called the zone of emergence. They moved into that next ring around the city where they could buy a small house, rent out two floors, and move up into the middle class. But Mr. Prescott Hall, he wanted to restrict immigration. And in order to restrict immigration, he realized he wanted to restrict construction of housing in which immigrants lived. And he was really quite successful over time, unfortunately. By the 1930s, a woman that you referenced in uh, your explanation of the book named Edith Wood came along. And uh, her 1934 paper and other aspects of her large body of work made her, as you describe, the key successor to Jacob Rees. How so? Well, she believed that uh, the logic of the, the, the Lower East Side and all that what was led you to the conclusion that the private sector would fail in building housing, supplying housing would fail two-thirds of the American public. That was inevitable. It was non-repealable. It was just the case. They would build horrible places and they would be... Uh, slums and traps for fully two-thirds of the American people. The logic of that, of course, was massive government involvement in the housing market, uh, including uh, public housing, which began when she and her, her friend Catherine Bauer joined uh, the Roosevelt administration. So that was the logic. She took it from, from the slums are bad to the projects are good. Along this time, the great migration of African-Americans from the South to cities in the North and the West began. How do they figure into the story of American housing policy? Well, uh, I'm a huge fan of communities that are no longer in existence, a lot of them. And uh, I think particularly just as the European immigrants moved to the Lower East Side and, and to South Philadelphia and uh, the south side of Chicago, so did African-Americans move north to the cities and found their own immigrant communities. There was Bronzeville in Chicago. There was DeSoto Carr in in, uh, St. Louis. And my favorite, which I go into in in some depth in the book, uh, was uh, um, in Detroit, and it was called Black Bottom. It was only called that because the French, when they founded Detroit, said this has some very dark soil. So it was not a racial reference in any way. But it became a really thriving black community that is still very fondly remembered by African-Americans in Detroit today. I've I've done one of these uh, book talks in Detroit with an African-American historian who is happy to have attention paid to uh, Black Bottom. And there was more than 100,000 African-Americans living there, a very significant degree of what I call in the book owner presence. So there's this canard that all of these areas of uh, lower income, uh, black people especially, were owned by slumlords. 
But the census data proves that's not true. They were two, three family, even four family homes, many of them owned by a resident owner. This was such an important part of the social fabric. It allowed those owners to accumulate wealth. It set an example for tenants that they could become owners. It allowed uh, uh, owners to have property that would appreciate in value all the things that have allowed other immigrant groups to advance. But African-Americans, this was interrupted because they had the misfortune of arriving in the cities at the same time that public housing really took off, especially uh, by 1949, the National Housing Act amendments under the Truman administration. And so Black Bottom, which had not only housing of the kind I just described, but uh, churches, including the church run by Aretha Franklin's father, the Reverend C.L. Franklin, mutual aid organizations, the Phyllis Wheatley Home for, uh, for Aged Colored Ladies, restaurants, really famous entertainment venues. Uh, all of this was torn down and replaced uh, by the Douglas Brewster housing projects. And this was a terrible tragedy for black people, in my opinion. And, and there's a gentleman named Jaman Jordan in, uh, who runs the Black Scroll Network in Detroit. And uh, he's recently put up, with the city's help, a marker, historical marker for Black Bottom. He feels so deeply about it. What happened was once you're home is torn down, uh, you're directed to the projects, which seem nice at first, but you can only rent in the project. The government owns them. You can never own anything in public and subsidized housing. And to this day, this remains a problem. 47% of the residents of public housing to this day are African-American. Those are all people who are not owning anything, not accumulating wealth. We shouldn't be surprised that having steered African-Americans into public housing, that there's a gap between black and white wealth. There were certainly other problems, redlining. I, I, I talk about all those too, but I think it's been underappreciated how much that great migration was undermined in its effectiveness toward upward mobility by the advent of public housing and the steering of African-Americans into public housing. So. I lament the passing of Black Bottom uh, with, with a bit of emotion in the book. If you were to visit that geographic area right now, what would you find? You'd find the Chrysler Freeway, and you'd find a lot of open lots because the Brewster Douglas housing projects themselves were ultimately demolished because they were in such bad shape. So they didn't even last much more than a, a 25 years. After the war, the big population explosion and a great demand for housing, one of the other People that you mentioned in the book who had a solution to this uh, was William Levitt with the creation of a town named after himself near New York called <laughs> Levittown. What was uh, important about what he did? Well, you know, there was a famous folk song in the 60s by a San Francisco balladeer, as they used to call them, named Malvina Reynolds, called Little Boxes on the Hillside, Little Boxes Made of Ticky Tacky. Pete Singer sang it at Carnegie Hall with a whole tone of derision about these little boxes. And uh, I, I'm celebrating the little boxes in the story of Levittown. Uh, what he did was find a way to build thousands, literally thousands uh, of 750 square foot homes. These were small homes. He had to get zoning variances from 
the town where he was building these because they didn't have any basements. They were built on slabs. They had unfinished attics, but he kept the price down that way. And he provided an avenue for upward mobility for uh, veterans of World War II, particularly streaming out of the cities, New York, and he built one in Philadelphia too. And they would literally kiss the ground that they were their home was going to be built on. They were so pleased to have their own small house with its own small yard. And so I, and he was the 1950 Time Magazine Man of the Year, but over time, people began to look down on him and his, his, you know, aesthetically modest homes. And I'm trying to rehabilitate his reputation because I think he disproved more than anybody else the idea of, of uh, Edith Abbott Wood, that the private sector was inevitably going to fail uh, the American working man. He showed that it can succeed in a big way. What did the two Levittowns, New York and Pennsylvania, look like today if you were to drive through? They don't look that different. You know, people have, what's interesting about them is that uh, uh, people have built up and out a little bit. They're able to elaborate on their homes, but the essential structure uh, is gonna be the same because it's a small home on a small lot, but they've held their value. And uh, I, I should add that Levitt made one tragic mistake, and this is in keeping with the book's uh, focus on, on the, the impact of housing policy on African-Americans especially. He had deed restrictions that barred uh, 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 African-Americans. And that was a horrible thing. And, and uh, it was a terrible missed opportunity. He, he admitted it later in his life, but uh, he was convinced, as was the housing, Federal Housing Administration in its, uh, in its oversight of mortgages, that uh, white people would never accept black people as neighbors. And I think that he had the perfect opportunity to disprove that because the desire for housing was so great. I think that uh, having neighborhoods of neighbors of a different race who could afford the same house that you could afford, and that's crucial, that's the secret to successful racial integration. And it would have happened in, in Levittown. And over time, it's happened in, in in modest ways, but not at the start. And that was a, you know, a terrible mistake by uh, Levitt and Sons, the builders. We found a documentary made in 1957 that's called Crisis in Levittown. It's from the Pennsylvania Levittown. And uh, it really speaks to what you just described. It's about a minute long. We're going to watch now. Since 1957, Levittown, Pennsylvania, attracted international attention. When violence erupted, as William Myers Jr. and his family moved into the three-bedroom house at Daffodil and Deep Green Lanes. In almost all respects, the Myers family is close to the Levittown norm. They have three small children, the youngest only one month old. Myers served for two and a half years in the Army and was discharged as a staff sergeant. He works as a laboratory technician and is studying for a degree as an electrical engineer. His wife, Daisy, is a college graduate. The Myers home is modestly furnished and their late model family car was bought on time. They're very close to the Levittown norm, except in one respect. William Myers Jr. and his family are Negroes in an all white community. 
How did that story turn out? Well, I don't know what happened to uh, uh, Mr. Myers. I hope things went well. Uh, and, and frankly, I'm not sure what the percentages are in 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 the two Levittowns today of uh, of black and white. But um, it should have been from the beginning, and it would have been unremarked upon if uh, that was Levitt's mistake by waiting so long and having to create these test cases. But uh, uh, as the narrator points out, that is the secret to successful racial integration. People lose sight of the fact that uh, there was a cultural integration going on in Levittown. The Eastern European groups that had their own neighborhoods and their own gangs in the cities, uh, Irish Americans, Italian Americans, Jewish Americans, they didn't necessarily get along famously in the cities, but they got along once they got to Levittown and realized they could all afford the same houses. I strongly believe that having uh, people of different backgrounds, but of the same socioeconomic status is, is the secret to successful racial integration too. And it's, it's a terrible uh, misfortune that Levitt didn't start uh, permitting selling to anybody who could afford anything. That should be our mantra in America. Anybody who could afford to buy or rent anywhere, that's fair housing. Uh, and Levitt didn't do it. You referenced a woman named Jane Jacobs, and in the book, you call her one of the most influential urban thinkers of the 20th century. She wrote a book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Why was she important? Jane Jacobs was the first person to blow the whistle on uh, what, what you'd have to call in that era progressive housing policies, urban renewal, the building of towers in a park, housing projects, uh, you know, the classic housing projects, the high rise surrounded by uh, a large quote unquote campus. And she was the one who said, this is not urban. This is the death of cities. That's what life and death of great American cities was about. These are places where there are no stores. There's no hustle and bustle. There are no small businesses. There are no churches. There's no synagogues. There's just empty land surrounded by high rise towers where nobody can own anything or can't buy and sell their units or any of that. And one of my favorite stories in the book is she went to Philadelphia and she she was writing for the magazine Architectural Digest at the time. This is where she did basically her kind of frontline research. She was a journalist. And uh, uh, she went to see the chief planner, city planner in Philadelphia, uh, kind of the equivalent. A lot of people know Robert Moses in New York. This was the Robert Moses of Philadelphia, Edwin Bacon. Edwin Baker Bacon is actually the father of the actor Kevin Bacon. It's one degree of separation there, right? Not making that up. And uh, he did a, took her on a kind of a before and after tour. He took her to the quote-unquote slums and look how dirty these streets are, Jane, you know. And now here's this new neighborhood and my new projects. And look how clean and bright they are. What an improvement. And she turned to him and she said, Ed, where are all the people? And that was what was missing. That was the death of cities. The people weren't there. The small stores weren't there. The street life wasn't there. And she went on to celebrate street life per se as the essence of the city, famously talking about when you have small buildings right up to the lot lines, interspersed with stores, you would have the classic Jane Jacobs, older woman, having her eyes on the street, 
and seeing who is the good guys and who is the bad guys, calling the police as necessary. So she understood the dynamism of cities and how urban renewal that did so much to deter the upward mobility of African-Americans and take away the communities of, of many other ethnic groups, how it was destroying not just that, but the very essence of urban life. We found a clip of Jane Jacobs in our video library. This is from late in her life, 2004, uh, just to give people a sense of how she was thinking about that time in her life, about cities. Think how many attempts there have been, and plenty in recent times, of trying to make utopias, not based on how cities do work or what the processes of real life are, but on thoroughly on wishful thinking how many of them there have been and what terrible tragedies lie behind their failures. It's a kind of hubris that we can do anything we please if we put our minds to it. We can't do anything we please if we put our minds to it. We have to uh, observe what works uh, and how it works. Reaction? I find her inspiring. I consider myself a Jane Jacobs acolyte, and I'm in many ways trying to elaborate on the and follow the path that she set out for us and needs to continue to be appreciated. Uh, she has a great line in, in Death and Life of Great American Cities that what happened was the, uh, was the realization of nobody's plans but the planners. This is like central planning in the Soviet Union. The, the great modern architects, Le Corbusier and others, they had this idea of how people should live. They should want to live in, in these places, towers with, surrounded by grasslands with no city streets. That was going to be the new city. They didn't ask anybody, do you want to live that way? They decided this was a good way to live. They were utopianists, just as Jane Jacobs said. But in the healthy city, you have millions of people making their own small plans and realizing those plans through the interplay of commerce and discussion. That's what makes cities the, the pinnacle of the human ecosystem. But the, the, the urban renewal planners, the utopians, they squashed all that. And Jaden Jacobs, you, you can hear in her voice the sadness she was not only somebody who was disagreeing with uh, her, her planning opponents, she missed those cities. She viscerally felt an attachment to healthy cities. Uh, and so, yes, I find her not only correct, but inspiring. Let's talk about HUD, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, established by Lyndon Johnson in 1965. We have a clip of him talking about the goal of housing policy, what it needed to be, as the bill that established HUD was assigned into law. In less than a lifetime, in less than my own 57 years, America has become a highly urbanized nation. And we must face the many meanings of this new America. Social change in our country is often faster than the mind of a generation can comprehend. But the pace of our urbanization has been stunning. It'll move still faster in the immediate years ahead. Between now and the end of this century, our urban population will double. City land will double. In the next 35 years, we must literally build a second America. 
putting in place as many houses and schools and apartments and parks and offices as we have built through all the time since the pilgrims arrived on these shores. The physical challenge is awesome. Since its inception, how has HUD changed? Well, I'll just say I don't particularly agree with President Johnson in, 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 in that clip, although certainly agree with him about the Civil Rights Act and many other things. Uh, but it, it, it's kind of notable just to hear the seriousness of purpose in his voice. I, I don't happen to agree with the purpose as it's enunciated, but one kind of misses that seriousness of purpose in the in the tones of, of many of our leaders. So that said, uh, HUD has changed because in the in the 60s and 70s, it was very much in the what they call the bricks and mortar business. And so it was continuing the urban renewal. It was not necessarily building government run housing, but it was partnering, as they say, with nonprofit groups, churches, building subsidized apartments, partnering with uh, property owners who, who made out very well to rehabilitate uh, uh, units and receive guaranteed rent streams and low interest mortgage. They were in the bricks and mortar business, both new and rehab. Then uh, beginning in, in 1973, Richard Nixon said, no more bricks and mortars. We're going to have housing vouchers. And so today HUD is, is distributing what's called housing choice vouchers uh, in the about three million a year to low-income households to rent, uh, and that augments the 1.3 million public housing units uh, that still exist and another million or so subsidized rentals. Uh, so, I mean, just to be technical about it, HUD has mixed up its portfolio with more direct subsidies to tenants and landlords and less uh, new construction. Uh, I, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm not a fan of either approach. So. It, but they have changed. You uh, describe the culture of uh, that grew out of the creation of HUD, both at the, f- the federal, state, and local level. And you write that there are 3,500 local housing authorities in the United States that, that partner with HUD. So uh, this is a 60-year investment in approach to housing this way. What do you see as the pluses and minuses of that long-term culture and investment? Yeah, I, I think HUD and President Johnson, you know, they were very influenced by uh, the urban riots of the 60s. The idea was we have to improve living conditions, particularly for the new immigrants, the black people coming to the cities in the late break, Great Migration. And they made a terrible mistake. They made the same mistake that Jacob Reese made. They th- assumed those conditions were going to be permanent. We should tear down substandard homes that they might be living in and replace them with subsidized uh, uh, apartments, and that has trapped uh, uh, minorities in in homes that they can never own, and wealth with wealth they can never accumulate. So that was the the terrible what I call the snapshot fallacy. This is going to last forever. They made that mistake, and HUD has gone on uh, to subsidize uh, more and more of these rentals. Uh, their approach has been augmented by what's called the low-income housing tax credit, which is a, another means to finance subsidized rentals. And we're starting to see the worm turn on this, where, where those who are concerned about low-income Americans realize that we have to find a way to get them into uh, some kind of equity situation, home ownership, not by uh, 
no-doc and low-doc loans like we had in the subprime crisis, but homes they can afford and maintain. But subsidized rentals, that has been the path that HUD has taken. I think that's been its fundamental mistake, along with tearing down neighborhoods and believing that these thousands of local housing authorities could manage property well. Government is not Government is good at many things. It's good at cutting checks for Social Security recipients and reimbursing doctors for Medicare payments. It's not good at managing housing. And we've had a huge amount of public housing that's had to be demolished because it got to be in such bad condition. And I don't think HUD has properly learned its lesson. Two aspects of, uh, of uh, subsidize or Uh, government housing that you write about having impacts societally. One is the uh, how rent is charged, that it's a percentage of income, and you argue that it really should be a flat rental piece. Explain uh, how this impacts the system. Well, as part of my unreforming housing uh, chapter, I was almost going to call the book that way, but it was too wonky. I think it's important to, we still have, you know, over a a million households in public housing, 3 million receiving housing vouchers. I think it's important to change the culture of those subsidies. And here's what I mean by that. Let's make that what what Lyndon Johnson called a a hand up and not a handout, a basis for upper mobility, a transitional period. But as it stands now, Sounds really great. You only have to pay 30% of your income in rent when you're in public or subsidized housing. But think about what that really means. It means as your income goes up, so does your rent. Does anybody else in the private market face that situation? Would anybody among our viewers here who is signing a private apartment lease agree to an escalator clause in effect like that, where the more money you made, the more you paid your landlord? I don't think so. Why Why do we want to punish the poorest households in America by, in the guise of limiting their rent, locking them into a situation where their rent goes up and they have what the economists call a really high marginal income rate. It's higher than Warren Buffett's secretary, I think. The more they earn, the more they pay. Let's change the culture of public housing in two ways. One, make sure they pay a flat rate. And then two, let's have it be a transitional phase. You're here for five years, you get a cheap rent, save up money, and then be prepared to move up and out. And there are housing authorities, San Bernardino, California is a very good example, that are doing it just this way. And they're seeing very good results with people getting better jobs, increasing their income, and not making public housing uh, their lives. 10% of the uh, public housing tenants in New York City have been there for 40 years or more. I don't think that's a success. You also write about an, a, a regulation that public housing uh, inhabitants can't have borders, can't bring in additional renters. Uh, why was that policy put in place and what effect has it had? Well, ever since Reese, there's been this obsession with overcrowding and density, and we need to make sure everybody has their own bedroom. You know, many immigrant families tell the story of kids sleeping on bunk beds and sharing bedrooms, but in the name of uh, Guarding against overcrowding, we limit the capacity of uh, those in subsidized housing uh, to do what Airbnb households are doing all the country, take in lodgers in order to increase their income. 
And of course, they don't want to increase their income because then they have to pay more rent. So they're in an abnormal housing situation and it's it's bad for their future prospects. And that's another example uh, of it. In fact, as it turns out, a very high percentage, it's about 27% in New York City, which is by far the largest public housing. There are 170,000 public housing units in New York. It's bigger than most cities in America, that constellation of housing developments. Uh, a really large percentage are what they call overhoused. They have empty bedrooms. The people, have, children have moved out. An older person stays there with an inexpensive rent and there's no turnover and there's no room for the newcomers, new immigrants to move in. Uh, and so uh, it, the distortions of public housing, distortions of rent control, these are all things that uh, really annoy me and I think hinder the prospects of low-income Americans where my, where my heart is. We have about 10 minutes left in our conversation about public housing policy, its history, and how we got to where we are today. You write about some of the private and local experiments that are going on around the country. One is national, but also local, and that's Habitat for Humanity. I'm sure most people watching are familiar with the concept and Jimmy Carter's longtime role in supporting that organization. Another one is in Brooklyn, which you referenced earlier, and it's a project called the Nehemiah Homes. We've got a clip from one of the founders, Reverend Johnny Ray Youngblood, talking about it. It's also from a, a documentary done in 2014. I want to uh, play this and then have you talk about these kinds of projects and what impact they have. The situation in East Brooklyn forced families and businesses to leave their neighborhoods. Hope seemed lost. But church leaders were not ready to give up. They crossed denominational lines to work on a rebirth of their community. It came in the form of the Nehemiah Housing Project, named for the Bible's Nehemiah and his efforts to resurrect Jerusalem. When we started building, I remember some of the newspaper people would ask, why are the churches doing this? And I remember saying to them, is that we are people of the resurrection faith, and therefore the best place for resurrection is a cemetery. Given the size of the need for low-income and affordable housing in the country, can these kinds of projects really make an important difference? Well, I think so. Uh, uh, I, I should point out that uh, the churches didn't build the Nehemiah homes alone. Uh, there was a builder named I.D. Robbins who was, who was a, a Levittown-type guy. He'd built a lot of suburban homes uh, with his, his brother in New Jersey. And he was the builder guy uh, who partnered with Johnny Ray Youngblood, who was kind of cleared the way uh, in, in public opinion and lined up uh, the buyers. So it was, it was a marvelous partnership and very unusual. Uh, I, I think we're seeing the whole American housing market in really interesting flux, you know. And so I, I think there's room. Uh, there's such a desire for walkable communities and such a need for modest homes that, yes, on an, what they call an infill basis in old town centers uh, where there's room for lots that could be turned into duplexes and triplexes, where there's empty land that can be filled in, where people can walk to stores and walk to transit. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to make San Francisco affordable overnight, but we can fill in uh, many areas in which there's 
uh, available land where zoning can be relaxed to provide for slightly denser possibilities like the Nehemiah homes. Many of them are two families. And so, you know, if we say, well, we need uh, two million more houses because too many people are paying more than 30% of your, their income in rent, well, then you're inclined to build apartment towers. But I don't think those have proven to be the way Americans really want to live in many cities. Let's give them the choice of accumulating uh, uh, capital and filling in areas in which uh, there can be uh, more Nehemiah-type homes. And it's starting to happen. California, incredibly, has just relaxed single-family zoning across the state in a Senate state Senate bill, uh, which is signed by Governor Newsom, so that uh, any single-family lot that's big enough can be converted into two duplexes. That's stunning. And so those are, you know, Nehemiah, we don't have to apishly follow uh, the exact blueprint of Nehemiah. Nehemiah-ish, Nehemiah-ish I just made that up, uh, uh, houses are small houses, houses with owner presence of many kinds. And so especially with the chance to work from home, I think we can see all sorts of things happening with uh, infill housing around the country. In my hometown of Cleveland, there can be a comeback. People are going to bounce back off the coast to Cleveland and Buffalo and Pittsburgh. And, you know, uh, Nehemiah type homes can be part of the part of the answer. So that seems as though it creates what you say, the missing middle. But your title is about the poor neighborhood. So what happens to the poor? Well, I think we have to look for uh, the reason I, I provocatively entitled the book The Poor Side of Town is as I want there to be towns that the rich and poor share, but not on the basis of the, well, there's public housing on one side of town and mansions on the other side of town. No, there's modest homes that are owned by their residents, and maybe there are less modest, more elaborate homes owned by their residents, and they have a common stake in making their, their municipality uh, well run. Uh, and uh, my hope for the poor is that they will have that next rung up on the on the housing ladder to pull up. I know people say, "Oh, pull yourself by the bootstraps." The economic system is 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 stacked against you. Uh, I I don't happen to to share that view. I think that small houses on small lots uh, that allow for the accumulation of wealth are one of the ways that we can uh, provide the means for upper mobility. And so I think we have to. Uh, avoid the idea, what I call the snapshot fallacy, that if you're poor today, you're always going to be poor, that we therefore need permanently affordable housing for people. Well, no, I think that situations can change. People can invest in themselves and improve their prospects. And uh, so that kind of bullishness encourages me to think that poverty is not a permanent situation and we need that slightly less poor side of town that they can move into and up out of. Your book argues for, as you call them, modest changes that can be consequential. And we talked about some of them charging flat rent rather than a percentage of income, leases short term so that you move out after some period of time, zoning reform. Uh, But let me ask if, if there could be one substantial change at the federal level that would have an enormous impact on housing policy, getting us where we should be as a society. Could you think of one? Well, 
you, you know, I'm, I, I'm actually not too much of a fan of federal action. We, we have what I call programitis in this country. There must be a federal program that can solve the whole thing. And so I, I think this is a, a change, this serving the missile, m- missing middle, as I call it, and the missing lower middle has to happen in 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 planning boards uh, uh, across the country. But in answer to your question, which I won't avoid, I, I would like to see the terms of public and subsidized housing change. There's a particular program, uh, very small, called Moving to Work, and only 30 public housing authorities have been allowed to join it. But those public housing authorities are given flexibility to experiment, to allow for short-term uh, rentals to allow for flat rents, uh, uh, to encourage, to link the receipt of subsidized housing to a, to work that happened uh, in Atlanta. Uh, and so I would like to see the federal government through an expansion of flexibility for public housing authorities, which are distributing these, you know, millions of housing vouchers and still supporting a million public housing units, give them more freedom and flexibility to experiment. That's what I think we need to have happen at the federal level. You know, I didn't ask the money question, but approximately how much money does the uh, federal government spend on spend each year on affordable housing and HUD-related activities? Well, uh, we spend about $20 million on housing vouchers alone and maybe another uh, 18 or so on public housing. I'm not quite sure of that figure. HUD's budget is maybe half a billion, uh, half a fifty billion. That's what I mean to say. Uh, but we also uh, uh, have a huge tax expenditure that we do. And the mortgage interest deduction is a, what they call. You know, we forego taxes and support mortgages. Uh, we have the low-income housing tax credit, which supports private building of subsidized housing. So there are a whole lot of pots. HUD itself is is 46 to 50 billion dollars uh and uh, but we spend more on housing vouchers than we spend on cash welfare now and so it's really worth worrying about the work disincentives and other problems that it's it currently poses the book is the poor side of town and why we need it as we close here are you optimistic about the future in housing oh i'm i'm optimistic absolutely because i think i'm we're seeing uh the uh uh, the earth move underneath uh, the California housing market. Minneapolis essentially prohibited single-family zoning. Oregon has moved against it. You know, I, I, I don't want it to be shoved down people's throats particularly, but I think planning boards, you know, one of my crazy examples is I was once in Seattle several years ago and there was a bicycle policeman. I'd never seen one before. Now they're everywhere. How did that happen? I think maybe... This missing middle housing with starting to let two families back into our housing for them and starting to let three families, four families back in. I think there's going to be a demand and that local officials will start to accede to it and accommodate it. And so I hope that happens. And that prospect makes me optimistic. Howard Husick, thank you so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thank you for having me, Susan. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 